Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Sarah Hoggy, a writer based in Toronto, Canada. And now here's our first letter. This next one, uh, this is so hard. I, I tend not to run this kind of question because I always feel like whatever answer I give feels so pat or fake or um, like forced cheer. Um, so mm-hmm. I just want to preface this with I don't have a really good answer for this one. But maybe I'll stumble my way towards something. The subject is, where do friends come from? Dear Prudence, in a recent chat, I saw one of the readers replies to a man who said he no longer had any friends. They recommended that he build up his current network of friends. But how do you do that? I've realized during the pandemic that I have no real friends. I've tried to get together with them and they keep saying they're up for something and then not having the time. They're extremely unsupportive about difficult things that are going on in my life. Think yelling at me when I once had a breakdown. I have some acquaintances, but I'm always the one reaching out. Is this common? How do I find good supportive friends? I thought my old friends were supportive until the last few years. I just don't seem to connect with people, or maybe they don't connect with me in the same way I think I'm connecting with them. I'm smart, funny, and supportive. What's wrong? Yeah, I I was thinking about this one a lot when I read it as well, mostly because, I mean, making friends is hard as an adult, when you're not in school, if you're not in school, if you're not, you know, right now there's a pandemic, clearly you're not going into workplace or like, maybe you don't want to be friends with your coworkers. I, Mm -hmm. I certainly don't when I have jobs. Um, but I do think that there's, there are a few things here. I'm thinking about like when I moved to Toronto for the first time and started making friends and I, I had that, that need, that want for like, let's hang out right now type of friends or, uh, what are you doing in one hour type of friends or just people who are really like ride or die type yes. people. And there are so many people that I'd meet and I'd be like, Oh, I so want to be their close friend. Like I want mm-hmm. this to happen. I want, I want this like relationship with them. And over time, I guess I kind of noticed that there's so much, there's so much work that has to be done to get to the point where you really feel supported and mm-hmm. you really feel close enough to someone to be really vulnerable and be yourself and not think so much about these things. So as far as making friends go, most of mine have been through the internet. Mm-hmm. My friends as an adult, I mean, that's how we know each other, but right. for me, it's, it's, but it takes so long. It takes years sometimes to build that foundation of true closeness. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really discouraging when you see people and you're like, they have it, like they're close. You see them hanging out all the time. You see them doing things, you see them supporting each other. And I, I think it's it's one of those things that no one really talks about how long it takes and how like an acquaintance six months from now, years from now becomes like such a core part of your life. And uh, I think there's like a lot of work to be done that we we truly just don't acknowledge. Right, right. And that there's not really a shortcut when it comes to intimacy or or at least not when it comes to intimacy and trust which I think both have to reach a certain threshold before someone crosses over from like an acquaintance who doesn't seem to wish me harm to somebody I can reliably make plans with or somebody who really cares about me and and knows me well. 
part of what I got a little stuck on was, and I felt a little bit bad about this, but like the yelling at me when I once had a breakdown is I just wanted to know, like, was it that you were like sad and devastated and you were crying about something and they yelled at you, like, get it together? Or did you have a breakdown in the sense that you were lashing out and and possibly saying hurtful things to other people or doing something hurtful? Like, I, I just feel like there's so much I don't know about that. And of course, it's both possible to have lots of friends who treat you badly all at the same time. So I don't want to rule that out. And it's also possible that you can be going through a breakdown or a difficult time and also hurt other people. And they might yell at you for some cause that I just didn't, I didn't know how to make a ruling there because breakdown felt like such an open-ended word. Does that feel too harsh? I don't want to be like unsympathetic to this writer. No, I don't think it's too harsh because I also think like you have to go through so many experiences, like, you know, like just anything that happens in your life, like you know, one, one way my best friend and I got really close and I realized like, oh, we're really becoming best friends is I lost my job and she was there for me right away. And it was like this kind of experience we shared together where I was totally devastated. I was just annihilated emotionally and she was there to support me and help me. And I feel like there are these, there's certain things that people just can't deal with. Like, I don't know what type of breakdown that was, but this person could have been super ill-equipped to deal with whatever it is. And that's just not the type of relationship you can have. You can't rely on this person when you have a breakdown. You can't rely on this person when this or that happens. But there are other ways that you could be friends with someone or other friends you can turn to for different issues or different parts of your lives. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do think that's also a thing that is like often overlooked when it comes to wanting that type of intimacy is knowing, pe- knowing people's limits and what they what you guys can offer each other as friends and kind of setting a different standard. Like there are certain people who are just so like, give everything. I'm there for you. I'm supportive. I'm, you can talk to me about anything. And and there's certain people who are just not, they're just not that. And I I think it's also about setting expectations differently perhaps and knowing people's limits as well. Right. And I think when you're making new friends, not trying to hold them accountable for things previous friends have done to hurt you, Like if you go into, I need to make a lot of new friends, but they better initiate hanging out with me because my last friends never did, then you Mm -hmm. can kind of start out with a chip on your shoulder where you're looking for reasons to get upset with other people. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a common feeling. I find that a lot of people feel like they're the ones always reaching out. And it's something I've heard so much from people. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. there, there can't be any way where everyone's always a person who's reaching out and no one's reaching out to them. But also, I mean it really just takes time for people to learn that muscle of like, oh yeah, hey, this person's someone that I can reach out to to have coffee with tomorrow or whatever. And I think, I'm glad you brought that up because I really do think, while it is one thing if you feel like I'm in a really one-sided friendship and I don't feel that this person is invested in me in the way that I am with them, that that I think can be real and true and sometimes either worth discussing or worth deciding I'm going to scale back on this friendship to protect myself. Both of those seem legitimate to me as a response. But I also think sometimes, and I see this sometimes too in letters about like who is or who isn't initiating sex in a relationship. There's this idea of if I have to initiate it, it doesn't really count. And anything else that works, like if when we do get together, they're punctual, they're there, they're excited to spend time with me, they they care about me, they demonstrate that they care about me, it, it didn't count because they didn't bring it up. And, and then I just wonder like at that point, is that serving you or is that just about scorekeeping? It, it's one thing if, as in this case, you know, I try to getting together with them and then they they always bail on me. Although, again, God, I wonder if that's like mostly in the pandemic and I would just encourage you to really be 
gentle with people who are not up to, you know, the pandemic is really hard on people. And a lot of people are weirdly overscheduled, even if they're at home all of the time. Yeah. And sometimes it's exhausting and people want to be ready for something that they might not be. So if you have an opportunity to be generous there, I think do. I also think there's a, a really huge thing of like compounding loneliness into thinking that like there's almost like not like a conspiracy against you, but that there's something fundamentally wrong with you where no one wants to be around you or see you. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, not usually the case, but yeah, it's, it's really hard. Like even just thinking of some of my close friendships now, one of my really good friends, she started like talking to me and emailing me when we were, you know, just very casual internet acquaintances. And mm-hmm. I thought she was so cool that I would get too scared to email her back. Mm-hmm. And I remember like a couple years ago, she's like, yeah, I thought you didn't want to be my friend. Cause you just like, didn't email me back. And I was like, no, I was terrified of emailing you back. Cause I thought you were so cool. And I thought you just wouldn't care if I didn't email you back. So- I think that's useful. <laughs> not, not that like all of his friends are secretly terrified of him so much as just you often don't know what's going on behind somebody else's behavior. And we tend to assume they don't care. They're not going through the same things I'm going through because you can't see someone else's loneliness in the way you can see your own. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I honestly, it's really hard to tell someone like, keep trying, you'll get there. But it, it really is. There's so much, there's a lot of work that goes into true long lasting friendships and it takes a lot of time and in, in my yeah. experience to really get to that point of true intimacy. Yeah. I, I think the last two things that I'll say on the subject is one, don't assume that good friendships are one where you will always intuit what the other one wants or where you will never fight. I think people usually don't expect a good romantic relationship to go that way. And I think it's also good to think of friendship that way. I think you should assume we will sometimes fight. We should sometimes fight. Not all the time and not about petty stuff, but something. Um, And we will not always be able to guess or intuit what the other one needs. And we'll sometimes have to have tough conversations. Um, And to that end, if any of the friends that you had previously thought of as supportive and depending on what that breakdown was like, if you don't feel like all of them behaved as badly as as some of them. If there are one or two of them that you want to reach out to and say, this really hurt me. I really needed you when you weren't there for me. Can we talk about that? It, it may be that some but not all of those friendships are salvageable. And and if you've never before had a fight with them and you've, they've never before let you down and you think that it might be possible to, to get somewhere meaningful, try it. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I wish being smart, funny, and supportive meant you would get a lot of great friends. It doesn't always. I think the better question is to think about how can I make my life as it is right now as enjoyable as possible? What's something that I can do today that will bring me joy, even if it's not spending time with somebody else, which was what I've been hoping for? Um, How can I treat my own life with care, even when there's not yet a deep friendship in it? That, I think, will go a long way towards making you feel like, I would like friendship, but I know how to look after myself and do things that bring me joy. Let's move on to a very tangible problem. The subject of this next letter is laundry hell. Oh my God. This one really, I I found it strangely endearing. (laughs) Me too. Dear Prudence, my five-year-old refuses to fold laundry for me. She folds for her dad. And when I try the same tactics, like fold 10 things to get a break or go eat, she does nothing. I'll go cook and she does not fold. She does not even fold when I'm in the room also folding. It has gotten to the point where I just let my son, age 10, watch one show so we're not bored while we fold and my other child does nothing. 
My other son has been folding since he was three, the same age that I started having my daughter help with laundry. Today I was so mad at her, I shut her in the bathroom for five minutes, twice, and she still refuses to fold. If I leave the room to cook, do other chores, or enjoy my free time, she goes to play in her room. I am the one in charge of laundry, and am to the point of refusing to go on a trip out of state to see my mother-in-law so my younger child also misses out. She must not want to go if she refuses to fold to pack for the trip. Well, I think this is a really beautiful Beverly Cleary novel. You could oh. absolutely hang like an Anastasia Krupnik book on this for sure. <laughs> she won't fold. It's a, this is this, uh, you know, write this down and turn it into a storybook. It's- uh, uh, how old were you when you started being given folding responsibilities? I don't remember when I started folding. I mean, there was no like family tradition of folding. It wasn't a big thing. Also, I, was, I, I am the baby of my family. So there's much I didn't have to do growing up. But uh I think this is a weird game that is being played now. Um, and I, there's no doubt uh, in my mind that this five-year-old sees it as a game and it, that she is very strong-headed and determined to win. Mm-hmm. And as long as this is kind of treated as a game of you better fold or I'm going to do this, this child will, will never fold laundry ever. And they yeah. will gladly miss this trip to your mother-in-law's because this girl wants to win. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree. I think with a five-year-old, the mistake is getting really caught up in like they're doing this on purpose. They they are just they just want me to suffer. Like she's five. I I get it, and I, I understand that you want to have a generally helpful, chore happy kid. But I think the I was so mad I put her in the bathroom for five minutes. Was like it's it's not ideal, but it's also like. It's a timeout. It's five minutes. Um, I'm not worried about her her safety. It's it's just that I think it's not working for you and it's not working for her. Although I, I think it's good if you're like, I'm at the point of I'm about to really lose my temper with my kid. It is good to take a little break. But I would say instead of letting things get to the point where you want to put her in the bathroom and walk away, because I, I don't want you to keep doing that. I don't think that's going to work for you or for her. Um, I, I would say don't make it about the folding. So if you need to leave to cook or do another chore, um, just really change it. Say like, oh, do you want to help me chop? And like food can sometimes be a little bit more fun than laundry. And it can be portrayed as a slightly more like you get to do a kind of grown up thing, which often five year olds love getting to do. And I realized I just said, give her a knife and let her chop stuff, which maybe she's not ready for. But um. <laughs> I was chopping at five. Um, I do think I think that's exactly it. It's like it, it seems like it's really about the folding right now for both of you and not really about the idea of like what chores mean to a child, which is like responsibility and contributing to the household and learning how to do things so that, you know, you can do them when you're a bit older. Um, and that it's so set on folding and not other chores seems to kind of be the issue, which is, yeah, which I think exactly what you were saying, where it's just kind of like, give her another task, ease into folding, you know, trigger into folding, turn it into a game. Um, yeah. It seems like it's very serious right now. Like this has yeah. gotten to a really serious point where it's like, what are we going to do about the folding? You know? Right. And you just have better options at that point. Like she's, she, it is not true that she must not really want to go. She's five years old. Five-year-olds do not get something as big as a trip to grandma and fo- like, it's just not, you're thinking of her as like, she's 35 and she knows exactly how cause and effect and consequences work. She's a fully developed brain. She's making this choice really consciously. Like she's five. She's, she's learning how to say no and be kind of a dick. Five-year-olds are kind of dicks. 
it doesn't sound like this is such an issue in every other area of your life that you need to really worry about. I think hand this one over to dad. It sounds like she folds for him. So I, I just think like be a little bit less in charge of laundry and say like getting her to fold is your thing and just let this one go. And if you need to do something else and redirect her attention, great. If you find yourself getting so mad that you want to lock her in the bathroom, again, check check with dad. Find dad. <laughs> say like, let's go get dad. He's going to do something fun with you now. Yeah, it seems like mother and daughter are very similar in the sense where it's like, oh, I'm going to win. I'm going to make you do this. And the daughter's like, I am not going to do this and I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that it is it is kind of endearing in a way. Probably really annoying if that's if you're the mom in that situation. But yeah, don't make don't make it so serious, honestly. Yeah. Like it, the big the more it becomes a thing, the more it's a thing. Yeah, like it, it doesn't have, have to be that wills. serious. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have a battle of wills with a five-year-old because first of all, the five-year-old will probably win. Um, and second of all, it's a five-year-old, you know, like yeah, she's five. She's really five. Just in those moments, remind yourself she's really, really five. She's not my nemesis. She's five and she's tired because she wasn't alive six years ago. And like, she's just figuring out having like a brain and a body and like she food tastes weird all the time. And there's a lot of She's rules. Noticing and, textures. Yeah. It's, yeah. She doesn't yeah. even have kneecaps. Kids don't get kneecaps until they're like six. I'm pretty sure that's like a fact. What? Unless like, yeah. Unless like someone was lying to me, but like I, maybe Google that, but like honestly. Children like, don't have kneecaps? <laughs> when do children get kneecaps? That I'm can't pretty sure. I, I'm possibly. Now I'm really scared. I'm, I'm pe- like peddling a lie someone told me because I'm so gullible, but I'm pretty sure they don't have kneecaps until they're like six. Okay, hang on. Uh, babies are born with a piece of cartilage in their knee joint, which forms during the embryonic stage of fetal development. Uh, these cartilag- cartilaginous? Cartilaginous. Cartilage things. These kneecaps will eventually harden into the bony kneecaps that we have as adults. That's from healthline.com. I'm pretty sure there's something about kneecap. There's something kids don't have in their bodies until they're six. Yeah. And I'm telling you, this kid just yeah. isn't fully formed yet either. Kneecaps develop later. So yeah, you you were <laughs> not like totally misled. I just, I thought I had kneecaps when I was five. If you, I, if you would ask go me, to my... <laughs> if you would ask me, did you have kneecaps when you were five? I would have said yes. Duh. I'm going to go to my uh, sister's house and just touch your kids' knees and be like, where are the caps? Show me. God. I'm just picturing them coming in like teeth and like little five-year-olds being like, oh, my knees are killing me today. I need to. She has, she has her baby teeth. She has adult teeth up in her skull. You know, like this is, we're not dealing with a fully formed human yet. You know? Yeah. No. When, when somewhere between two and six years old, their cartilage patella starts forming a center of bone. I learned something from Sarah today. Yes. I wasn't right. Oh my God. I was sweating that I was like really stupid for a second because the, the second you reacted i was like oh my god is that crazy i was just stunned um, i know babies yeah. have that little spot in the back of their head that you have to be careful of so I, I knew some parts of the skeleton weren't done but my goodness the human skeleton is stunning um <laughs> yeah good luck with your kid please don't do the whole thing about the trip um that's too big it's too heavy it's, it's just gonna teach her that like sometimes her parents get really angry with her for reasons that she can't quite put together and it's going to make her She's not going to remember either this won't be a lesson kids don't remember why things happen they just remember them not happening yeah yeah you got to think of like age-appropriate consequences and you gotta i think whenever you can 
do your best to restrain your anger when you are administering consequences. Because if you only ever do it when you're in the throes of anger, your kid's just going to learn to be afraid of you. And you don't want that, I think. I don't think you want that. Good luck. Also, I'm glad that your 10-year-old is so great at folding. That's fantastic, you know? That's that's not nothing. That's our mini episode of Dear Prudence for this week. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. As always, if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 